Some of the finest Tennessee rap you'll ever hear. <laughs> so today, open your Bibles, Revelation 17 through 19. Um, today we meet two ladies, attend two banquets, and yes, we meet a warrior on a white horse in these chapters. Uh, pray with me, please. Lord, ready our hearts to receive your good, strong word for us. Purge our hearts of our bent towards evil, to coddle, to toy, to explore, and free us to follow your son, who is a warrior, and uh, enlarge our vision of Jesus today through your word and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Um, parents, just a heads up, if you read the passage, you know that probably your kiddos are going to get a bit of a vocab lesson today. That's on the Apostle John, not on me. So I trust you to use that beautifully in your kids' lives. Uh, NPR, um, National Public Radio journalist Scott Simon has always avoided, he says, using the word evil when covering terrible events around the globe. He claims he was of a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept. But then he watched with his daughters some of the sickening images from the chemical weapons attack in Syria in April 2017 that killed scores of people, many of them children. And Simon writes, we watched in silence. He says, I've covered a lot of wars but could think of nothing to say to make any sense. And finally, one of our daughters asked, why would anyone do that? He says, I still avoid saying evil as a reporter, but as a parent, I've grown to feel it may be important to tell children about evil as we struggle to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior they may see not just in history, but in our own times. He says, I once interviewed Romeo Dallaire, who commanded UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda in 1993 and 94, when more than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were slaughtered over three months. Dallaire said that what happened made him believe in evil. And even a force he called the devil. I've negotiated with him, he said. Shaken his hand. Yes, there is no doubt in my mind. And the expression of evil to me is through the devil and the devil at work possessing human beings, turning them into machines of destruction. He says, I think that evil and good are playing themselves out and God is monitoring and looking at how we respond to it. And so today, the first woman that we meet in Revelation 17 is the embodiment of evil. And it begins like this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of, those of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So I think you get the idea. This is graphic evil. And likely this is not simply a literal woman, though an actual woman could and likely has and may yet again play this role throughout history. This woman is a symbol of evil. Like the beast and the dragon. And she is almost a kind of triple symbol. Um, Because as you heard read, she represents Babylon. On her name is written the the name of mystery, Babylon the Great. And Babylon in turn represents in John's day, Rome. A city famously set upon seven hills, as we'll see. Peter refers to Rome as Babylon in 1 Peter 5. And Rome in turns in turn, represents a culture in opposition to God. Professor Grant Osborne says that Rome and and also Jerusalem in Revelation together represent the unholy capital city of the Antichrist. Pastor Sam Storm spells out the symbolism behind Babylon, behind Rome, behind this woman. says, as you will recall... Babylon first appears in history as the name for the ancient kingdom that took Israel into captivity in the Old Testament. Babylon was guilty of all manner of wickedness and oppression and idolatry. Thus, the name Babylon came to be used not simply for the historical kingdom in the 6th century B.C., but also for any earthly city or nation or ruler who stands opposed to Jesus. Babylon in Revelation refers to any nation, such as North Korea, any social organization, such as Planned Parenthood, any political movement, such as communism under Lenin and Stalin, or the pornography film industry, or false religions, such as Islam, that denies that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and opposes the teaching of God's word as revealed in the Bible. He goes on and says, Babylon is found wherever and whenever there is satanically inspired deception and idolatry. Babylon is the symbol of all worldly entrenched opposition to Jesus Christ. In ancient times, Babylon was Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Nineveh, and Rome. More recently, Babylon is Nazi Germany, China under Mao Zedong, Soviet Russia under Stalin, North Korea and Iran, and even the United States to the degree that our own country resists the kingdom of Christ. As one author put it, Babylon represents the total culture of the world apart from God. And so evil is this entity that only the image of a whore will do. Her evil is freighted with sexual imagery. And though that's likely a significant part of what her evil consists of, it's not the center. We'll uncover the dark center of her evil shortly. But the imagery of the harlot is an image designed to underscore her sensual and seductive appeal as she seeks to lure people away from Jesus. And she is powerfully seductive. In verse 6, 
John himself says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you marvel? So it's as though even the great and aged apostle John is drawn to marvel at her. So powerful are her charms. And as a result, the angel warms and even rebukes him, it feels like. So let me stop right here and say, she is stalking you. She is stalking your children. Be forewarned by John's vision. A great evil unleashed upon our world seeks to lure you away from Jesus. And as though that imagery, the imagery of a harlot is not vivid enough, the whore sits atop a beast. Verse 3 says it's a scarlet beast that's full, full of blasphemous names. It's another dark symbol of evil. We met it back in chapter 13, if you remember. And in the section we're looking at today, there are seven messages of judgment pronounced upon the whore of Babylon. You remember, again, the number seven in the book of Revelation is a favorite symbolic number, often represents completion or fullness. She will be totally judged. In the verses that follow, there's an angelic description of the beast. It corresponds to Rome, to the city of the seven hills, and portrays Rome and her allied kings opposed to Christ. Verse 13, we read that these kings are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the Lamb. And the essence of evil is its opposition to our good God and to the Lamb. But spoiler alert, right? Here's a spoiler alert. Verse 14, the lamb will conquer them. The lamb will conquer. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The lamb who is Jesus, wins, prevails over evil. But then this vision takes an unexpected turn, which, I mean, like you expected a horse sitting on a beast, right? So it takes another unexpected turn, we should probably say. Verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So all of a sudden, the beast upon whom the prostitute sits turns on her and devours her, right? Didn't see that coming, right? Look at what happens next. This is God's work. He is overcoming evil with evil, using evil to accomplish his purposes. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts 
the beast and these kings, to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So take heart at the supreme power and goodness of our God. Even evil bends to his will and surrenders to his greater purposes. No wonder he is called Almighty. Or I I love the way Eugene Peterson renders it, the sovereign strong, he calls it. Well, chapter 18 continues to deal with the evil entities of the beast and the whore of Babylon. And it begins with these two heavenly proclamations. The first is from an angel, and the second comes more generally just from heaven, it says. Verse 1, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So the angel declares her thorough destruction. She's now reduced to just a haunt for unclean beasts and animals of every kind. The great satanic system of evil and destruction that's corrupted all of Earth's history has fallen. Now there's another declaration. This one comes, it says, from heaven. And pay attention, it starts with a warning for us, for God's people. In verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So separate yourself from her evil ways unless you fall into her sins and her judgments. So today, there's a clear warning here that if you are If you are toying with sin in any way, shape, or form, today's the day to flee from that. To turn from it and run to Christ who prevails over evil and delivers his people. Now the voice from heaven continues with the declaration of her severe judgment. It says, says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Remember that phrase. Glorified herself, lived in luxury. This is the dark center of the whore of Babylon. It's not primarily sexual. It is a luxurious self-orbit. It goes on and says, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I sit as a queen. I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So with sudden judgment, this comes upon um, 
her and she falls in a single day. There's no security in what she offers. And what follows now are three funeral dirges over her demise. They are sung by kings and by merchants. Think entrepreneurs, businessmen and women. And by sailors, the maritime, sea captains and such. And there is a recurring theme in these three laments. See if you pick it up in the verses that I'll highlight for you. First is the lament of kings and merchants over the death of the prostitute. Babylon. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury. There's that language again. They lived in luxury with her. Will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. You catch, you catch that? The source of their sorrow? No one buys their cargo anymore. They aren't lamenting the death of a city and its inhabitants, just their financial loss, their business downturn. Listen to the declaration. It continues in verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. They lost what their soul longed for. These, these business leaders and these entrepreneurs, these kings, they lost their income. They lost their luxurious lifestyle. And their, their sorrow continues. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and fine pearls, in a single hour, all this wealth, all this wealth, that's what they're concerned about. All this wealth has been laid waste. And then the shipmasters chime in and they say, shipmasters, seafaring men, sailors, all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she's been laid waste. It's what, the, it's what the proverb says, right? Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. See, the recurring theme in these laments over Babylon's fall is for their loss of capital, right? It's an earnings downturn, and it affects their life of luxury. They don't get to live it anymore. They can't live large. She was awash with luxury and wealth, and they profited from her. And then, just like that, it's all gone. And she is stalking you with those same baits. 
Kevin Miller writes that the average American watches TV for nearly 30 hours a week. That's 65 days of nonstop TV watching every year. By the time they graduate from high school, students will have viewed 360,000 commercials. The average 65-year-old will have watched 2 million commercials. Each of these commercials has been created by smart people who pack their ads with powerful images, catchy music, and humor, and memorable slogans. Most of the commercials have a primary theme. This product will give you true happiness and deep satisfaction. He says, based on the worldview presented by TV commercials, here's how I would rewrite the Beatitudes, the blessings of Jesus. Blessed are those who fly to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands where they lie in chase lounge chairs, the only two people on an enormous white beach, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who drink much beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree football-watching buddies and highly attractive, socially gifted women in the first half of life, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have the latest smartphone, for they shall gaze on a screen swirling with color and shall get all the information they need just when they need it, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have outstanding kids. Verily I say to you, highly blessed are those who have a golden Labrador retriever bounding along on that slow motion um, video day of playing with the kids in the park, for they shall be the envy of real families everywhere, and they shall be satisfied. So are those your beatitudes? I mean, is that, is that where you think blessing and satisfaction lie? What if following Jesus costs you your luxurious life? What if it costs you your business? What if you end up downsizing and you only have one car? What if you have to sell your house and move into a tiny apartment or, or a rundown single wide? What if you have forfeit your retirement? No more vacations. What then? Remember the warning from heaven itself. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share her plagues. And at the back end of chapter 18, an angel picks up a large millstone and he throws it in the sea that symbolizes Babylon's fall. And then the scene changes. Chapter 19, this is what we read. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you who fear him, small and great. So now, at the destruction of, of the whore by um, none other than Jesus, 
heaven breaks out in the hallelujah chorus, right? This is the only time in the New Testament where the word hallelujah occurs, just here. And it occurs four times in these six verses. It can, and when you read this, it can feel like bad form to so rejoice over someone's destruction. You know, it's like poor sportsmanship, like you're rubbing it in. But it's critical to remember what this prostitute symbolizes. She embodies evil and opposes God and his people, seeking to seduce them away from Jesus. Anything less than total destruction is downright dangerous. And anything less than total celebration at her destruction is folly in light of who she really is. And now in chapter 19, we drop, down, we drop in on the first of those two banquets and we meet our second lady. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the first of the two banquets <clears throat> excuse me, is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as you probably guessed, it celebrates the wedding of Jesus and his church and his people. Pastor John Piper says, all of redemptive history for thousands of years has been aiming at this one thing, the final union of the Son and the people of God in glory forever and ever. Now, there was a time back in the day uh, when I got married that a wedding reception consisted of cake and maybe, if you were lucky, mints and nuts. And if you were really lucky, there were cashews in the nuts. I mean, that was it. <laughs> that was basically our wedding reception. Um, but having recently married off not one but two daughters, I can tell you that this is no longer standard operating procedure. Um, not by a long shot. It is commonplace, if not expected these days, that something that approximates a, a glorious sit-down dinner uh, will be involved in celebrating the wedding of your daughters, gentlemen, be forewarned. Okay. Now, now, typical costs run about $40 a head for this meal. Um, you take that times a couple hundred guests, guys, you do the math, you figure it out. But if you happen to be Bill Clinton and your daughter gets married, it gets worse than that. Um, rehearsal dinner, $250,000. And then the caterer for the day itself, $750,000. You notice Bill does not look happy in this picture. <laughs> That's why Bill does not look happy. Now the wedding supper of the Lamb will be the reception of all receptions. We know almost none of the details. 
except the one that seems to matter most to almost any bridegroom. Bride has made herself ready. And it's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then, and then the angel tells us the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what matters most is that the bride is there. That's the church. Okay? That's us. That's us. And is the case in any wedding. There's a great focus of what the bride is wearing. If you were Kanye West... Your bride wore this dress worth a cool $500,000. $500,000. But if, you were, if you're the daughter of a jewelry magnate, you're looking at a dress with 500,000 crystals sewn into it. This dress is worth over a million dollars. More than a million dollars. But this bride in Revelation 19 wears something even more beautiful to her groom. It says, it's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, the righteous deeds of the saints. She, that is we, wear fine linen that represents our purity and our righteous deeds. And the idea, based on what the emphasis of the book of Revelation is, that the saints, those deeds are the saints remaining faithful even amidst the hardest of times, suffering, hardship, persecution. This may be one of the reasons we're here in a world of great suffering and evil. So we can adorn ourselves with lives of faithfulness to Jesus even amidst evil and suffering. This makes us delightful to our groom. It makes us beautiful before him. This should be great encouragement for those of you who are suffering right now, quite possibly through no fault of your own, even the willful fault of another intentionally trying to do you harm. Your faithfulness now, in the midst of your hardship, it's as pleasing to Jesus as a bride's dresses to her groom. You are thrilling him with your faithfulness when you suffer. It's worth it, friends. It is worth it to faithfully follow Jesus even now in what you're in the midst of, especially now. The bride is our second lady, and she is an intentional, vivid contrast to the whore of Babylon. The one seductive and sensual, luring us away from God. The other pure and devoted to him, welcomed into his presence. The one damned by Christ. The other welcomed and delighted by him. Friends, you want to be the bride, right? You want to be the bride. And so now the scene turns again. <clears throat> we see a warrior on a white horse and the second banquet. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, just to be Captain Obvious, this is Jesus, right? This is Jesus. It reminds you, I hope, of what we saw in Revelation 1 that Ranjur taught us so beautifully. Um, this is Jesus. He is faithful. He is true. His judgments, though terribly severe, are righteous. His flaming eyes see everything and judge justly. He wears many crowns, far more than the dragon's seven crowns, far more than the beast's ten crowns. He has full, full and greater authority than either of them. He has a secret name. It remains a mystery to us until he reveals himself to us fully. Professor Grant Osborne says that this new name no one knows except himself is a title reserved for eternity, the name that will reveal the true nature of the Godhead in a way beyond our finite ability to grasp. His robe is dipped in blood. It could be his own blood, sacrificed, or, or that of his enemies. He's called the Word of God. He speaks and carries out the commands of God against his enemies. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. And he brings this terrible statement, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty upon them. He bears worthy and exalted and supreme names, unlike the beast who was full of blasphemous names. Clearly, this is the true warrior king, King Jesus, who reigns above all others on the throne with God Almighty, and he is exercising his reign to the fullest. This is the second coming of Christ. And now our passage closes with another scene change, and it's that second banquet. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's graphic imagery, right? It portrays the worst of defeats, a slaughter in which the birds eat the flesh of the defeated enemy. It adds humility and degradation to their defeat. This great and final battle, elsewhere it's referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, is almost no battle at all. Um, it, it takes two verses to happen. That's it. That's the whole battle. Two verses. Um, it is a total rout. 
the one on the white horse by the sword that comes out of his mouth prevails. That's it. That is it. He prevails by his word. And this second uh, banquet, the great supper of God, is a stark contrast to the first banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb, isn't it? At the one, guests are feasting. At the other, they are the feast. Clearly, the choices are sobering here. Pastor Sam Storms gives us a beautiful invitation. He said, there's an obvious contrast between, on the one hand, the marriage supper of the Lamb to which the bride is invited, and on the other, the great supper of God to which the birds are invited that they might eat the flesh of his enemies. At the end of history, there will be two great suppers, at one of which all people will attend. Either you will eat or be eaten. Either you are a guest who dines or you are the dinner. One is a reward for faith and righteousness, the other a punishment for unbelief and wickedness. The wedding day is near, he says. The bridegroom is coming. Have you betrothed yourself to Christ? Have you made yourself ready by turning to him in faith and clinging to him above all others? The invitation has been extended. If you wish to attend the marriage feast of the Lamb, you must respond. RSVP, he says, in trust and adoration, and confident hope that Jesus alone can save your soul, forgive your sins, and clothe you in fine linen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, in your mercy, let us be at the first banquet, not the second. Let us be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, not the great supper of God. And so, Lord, I pray for us all. I pray especially for those who look at Christ's coming with fear and uncertainty. I pray, God, that you would grant faith in the one on the white horse who bore the cross and rose from the dead on the third day for their sins, that they would trust in him and hope in him and follow him. For that is the way by which we access the marriage supper of the Lamb, faith in Jesus. Lord, grant it now to all who hear. And Lord, help us bear this hope to our friends that they might eat that feast with us.